0: Welcome to Trade Off, a marketplace special about the globalization backlash as the world's major economies are inching toward trade war. How'd we get here and what happens next? I'm Scott Tong.
1: And I'm Sarah Gardner. Thanks for joining us.
0: So, Sarah, we started reporting on the anti globalization backlash last year for a series of stories that ran back in 2017. And now we're back with a modified rerun because, well, because 2018. It turns out the rhetoric from President Trump on trade and borders turned out not just to be rhetoric. Here he is at a rally in Michigan last month.
2: We're respected again as a nation. We're respected. We're not the patsies anymore. We're not the pushovers anymore.
1: As we speak, a Chinese delegation is in Washington, D.C., trying to avoid a full-blown trade war. And the U.S. isn't the only place this kind of muscle flexing is happening, of course. We have Mm. right-wing nationalism on the rise in Europe. Uh, Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, built a razor wire fence to keep out immigrants. Last month, he was re-elected in a landslide.
0: So let's step back, Sarah. Uh, I have to say, personally, seeing all this, it seems remarkable to me, this raising of drawbridges in different parts of the world. See, I grew up largely overseas in places that had to connect with the rest of the world. One's an actual island, the island of Taiwan. <laughs> and then I went to college and, <clears throat> in the late 80s, when the end of the Cold War taught us that open borders and capitalism and free trade, you know, they, they won. Class dismissed.
1: Right. The end of history. The new world order.
0: We talked about all that. And that was the theme song, as it were, when I graduated in 91, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., And last year in 2017, I returned to campus with a few fellow alums to ask, what's happened in the world? Here's my good friend Cynthia Bertolini, and she remembers the Berlin Wall falling in our junior year.
1: I remember vividly watching the the wall come down and thinking, what could that mean elsewhere in the world in terms of opening up?
0: That's kind of my takeaway from going back to school. That is, for most of my adult life, open trade seemed the normal state of things, but maybe... The last few decades were actually the exception rather than the norm in history. Jamie Martin is a historian at Georgetown. Globalization, far from being inevitable, could easily go into reverse or even collapse. We've seen that collapse in the 1930s at the start of the Depression in Europe and the United States. Back then, populism and protectionism won. The economists lost, as did world trade and well-being of a lot of people around the world. And today, with new U.S. walls against foreign steel and Chinese products in Beijing buying
1: less soybeans from the United States, could we see this movie again? Well, that's what everybody's asking these days. And those swings between protectionism and free trade, that's what we're going to look at. We've come to think of free trade as very American, right? Very free market capitalism. But if you go back to the beginning of the U.S. economy, we did not start out that way. Okay, so how far back are we going? Well, we're actually going all the way back to this guy.
2: Don't be shocked when your history book mentions me.
3: I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy.
0: Alexander Hamilton? I'm assuming you're talking about, I don't know, the musical or the guy. You know what? I'll let you take it from here.
1: Okay, here we go. So, protectionism can mean a lot of things. It can be a tax on imports, a ban on immigrants from a certain country, or a rule limiting foreign investment. But it all comes down to gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. America has a long history of keeping out imports when it suits us, and that goes as far back as, yes, Hamilton. You might call him our original protectionist. Uh Now, the Broadway musical skipped over that part, so to find that Hamilton— You actually have to go to Jersey, Patterson, New Jersey. Drive through town and you pass bodegas, pawn shops, discount stores. And then you come to something totally unexpected, a national park complete with a wisecracking park ranger, smoky bear hat and all. My name's Elise, and I'm highly entertaining. Elise Goldman is supervisory park ranger at Patterson Great Falls National Historical Park. This is where the Passaic River falls into a stunning 77-foot chasm. All right, get your cameras ready. It is a beautiful view. Goldman tells us Alexander Hamilton actually (laughs) picnicked here with George Washington during the American Revolution. They ate cold ham and tongue. They drank alcohol. And maybe they planted the first seeds of American manufacturing. Now, we don't know what they said exactly, so Goldman invents some lines for Hamilton. He gets up from the picnic, he goes over to the chasm, he looks at the falls, and he says, wow, you know, water's powerful. Powerful enough to turn water wheels to run cotton mills. The British had banned the colonies from importing anything that would empower them to build their own factories. So after the U.S. wins its independence, Hamilton, he's now Treasury Secretary, he wants to change that. An aide writes to him suggesting Passaic Falls might be a good place to build textile mills. He's sitting at a desk. It's late one night. He reads the letter and says, oh, my God, I totally remember that place. We had tongue." So Hamilton gets some investors together, and he makes the intellectual argument for homegrown industries in something called the Report on Manufacturers. A real slog, but important. So we took a cue from Hamilton the Musical and translated a key idea from the report into lyrics. Now, stay with me. I'm not going to perform, I promise. We called in a professional, Javon Carter from the Stooges Brass Band.
4: All right, man, let me get his head shot. So you want to be free? So you want to be free so of British tyranny? Of British tyranny. Then gentlemen build, then gentlemen build. An American and factory. American factory protect the, so the goods so high. It'll, so it'll, be foolish to buy. it'll be foolish to buy anything, anything but American. by American. Buy American. Buy American
1: tax imports by American. You get the idea. That's part of what economists call the infant industries argument for protectionism, helping shield fledgling industries from seasoned foreign competitors so they can get big enough to play with the big kids someday. Hamilton also pushed for government subsidies, money to give homegrown industries a competitive edge. That's another kind of protectionism, but that wasn't as popular back then. Now, Hamilton didn't live to see it. He died in 1804 after dueling with the vice president. But eventually, after several decades, the experiment at Passaic Falls worked. Patterson became a quintessential American factory town. That small building was the powerhouse to the Ivanhoe paper mill paper and cotton, silk, guns. Patterson and other early American industrial cities succeeded partly because Congress imposed tariffs on foreign goods. In 1816, the U.S. adopted the first tariff specifically to keep out imports, not just feed government coffers. And that launched a long history of American protectionism and a fierce debate over free trade that's still alive today.
2: I think it's hard for us nowadays to appreciate the extent to which in the 19th century the tariff was, for many people, a religious conviction.
1: American historian Eric Rauchway at the University of California, Davis.
2: Of course, for Republicans and for the majority view uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, to be pro-tariff was to be American.
1: In fact, some called the GOP the grand old protectionists. Free trade sounded mm, suspiciously unpatriotic. So protectionism, not free trade, was the American way for much of our history. We hear President Trump complain that China unfairly props up its steel industry, dumping cheap steel into global markets. That makes it hard for American steel to compete. People lose their jobs. Well, reality check... We were an emerging protectionist nation once, too. But there's a wrinkle here and an important one. Some people argue, look, protectionism built America and we developed into a world power by putting America first.
2: But what that argument overlooks is the fact that we were completely open to migration. So we had a lot of immigrants.
1: Dartmouth historian Douglas Irwin says on the whole...
2: We were completely open to capital flows and we borrowed a lot of money from British financiers. We were completely open to foreign technology. So we weren't really a closed economy in the 19th century. We were limited trade, but we were open in terms of ideas, capital, the movement of people.
1: At the end of that tour in Patterson, I ask another tourist, Antonio Montez, what he thinks about free trade. He's worked in manufacturing, law enforcement, now private security. And like a lot of Americans, Montez is searching for that sweet spot when it comes to globalization. Free trade I
5: hurt us in an extent, but at the same time, free trade had helped us. But I think we need to look more and, and, and be protective of the U.S., Because personally, I've been overseas, a veteran, we give a lot to other countries and we're not getting nothing back in return.
1: Alexander Hamilton might have related. He wanted to put America first too, but Hamilton also understood that protectionism comes at a cost, namely higher prices for consumers. In that big biography about Hamilton that was the basis for the musical, the author, Ron Chernow, writes that in Hamilton's vision for America, tariffs would be moderate, temporary, and repealed as soon as possible.
0: So you're thinking Hamilton the Musical 2.0, the trade and protectionist version?
1: Well, I'm not sure that would win a Tony Award, but I got to say, when I was digging into America's protectionist history, Scott, I did stumble onto actual songs about protectionism, believe it or not.
0: Okay. It was my understanding there would be no singing.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't promise that. <laughs> now, actually, this song is quite catchy. Don't make fun of it, Scott. It's a campaign song from 1896. All right. That's I'll when listen. Democrat William Jennings Bryan ran against Republican William McKinley. Now, he was a protectionist. And Hmm. McKinley's supporters wrote a song about how great his policies were going to be. It's actually called McKinley Protection. I found the sheet music, and we got this amazing men's choir in Minneapolis, Cantus, to bring it to life. So take a listen to the seventh verse.
5: Our great manufactories are all standing still without McKinley protection. That's why all the gold is locked up in the till without McKinley protection. Just shut up our markets to the foreigners' Mill, and give us the laborers a chance at the till. So, Scott, did you
1: catch that line? Just shut up our markets to the foreigner's mill yeah. and give us, the laborers, a chance at the till.
0: Ah, uh, There it is. A chance at the till, a chance at the auto factory, a chance at the carrier plant in Indiana that was going to go to Mexico.
1: Right. It sounds so modern.
0: So the U.S. has had a fondness for tariffs in the past, and just as they've come back into fashion today. But at one point in our history, you could say this fondness turned into an unhealthy obsession.
1: (laughs) Well, I have two words for you, Scott. Smoot Hawley.
0: That's what I expected. And those two (laughs) names have come up a lot lately. Most recently, from a long list of economists, I counted 1,156 of them, who warned President Trump against tariffs on China and the EU. They warned that trade will collapse, businesses would lose customers, the world economy could shrink. And they cited Smoot-Hawley, that protectionist bill back in 1930 that was the subject of another warning from, you guessed it, more than (laughs) 1,000 economists.
1: Well, the story goes that Smoot-Hawley tipped us into the Great Depression. Yeah. Well, that is not... What actually happened, but what Mm. did happen was not good. And it's worth taking the time to understand the story of Smoot-Hawley because protectionism often doesn't make great economic sense, but it can make sense politically. Smoot-Hawley is a perfect example of that. Even though, if you believe the movies, Scott, Smoot-Hawley is the most boring chapter in American history. In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, in an effort to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? The Great Depression.
0: Ah, yes. Ferris Bueller's day off, circa 1986. That's the classroom scene.
2: Passed the... Anyone? Anyone? A tariff bill. The Hawley-Smoot... Tariff, act,
0: which... Ben Stein, comedian and real-life economist, plays the teacher while his students snooze, drool. Bueller.
1: But it's actually a fascinating tragedy that leads to an economic train wreck.
0: Our protagonist and tragic hero is Reed Smoot. Republican senator from Utah, and the powerful chairman of the Senate Finance Committee.
1: See, Smoot was a Mormon and a very high-ranking leader of the Church of Latter-day Saints.
0: A devout gentleman, and as it turns out, a devout protectionist. Back then, the Mormon church dominated the sugar beet industry out West. Mormon historian Matthew Godfrey has written all about it.
4: Wilford Woodruff, who was president and the prophet of the LDS church when they got into the sugar business, said that he had had a revelation from God that the church needed to get into the sugar business.
1: So Mormon farmers grew beets, and the church controlled a huge sugar company, Utah-Idaho Sugar. In a little town that hugs the Wasatch Mountains called Spanish Fork, you can still see the remains of one of the company's sugar beet factories.
4: Now it's located right by uh, I-15. You can hear the cars going by.
1: We approach a dark, abandoned space and peek inside. A century ago, this was where the sugar beets were sliced up and ground into a pulp before extracting the sugar.
4: So it looks to me like there's a chute up there that the beets would drop down into.
1: Senator Smoot wanted to protect Utah's beet sugar from the imported stuff, mostly cane sugar.
4: He used kind of very nativistic philosophies of the time believing that white Americans were kind of the premier race at the time. And so he believed that if you could support an industry that included farmers who were white Americans, that that was more beneficial than relying on sugar that was grown by individuals from Cuba or areas outside of the United States.
0: Not only was that morally and economically dubious, it wasn't necessary. In the late 1920s, imported crops were not what really sank American farmers. Prices were low all over the world. But the good
1: protectionists didn't let that fact get in the way.
2: The Republican Party had to be seen as doing something to help farmers to win the farm vote in the Midwest. That's
0: Doug Irwin,
2: Dartmouth economist,
0: who wrote the book on Smoot-Hawley. It's called Peddling Protectionism. He says Congress initiates tariff hearings in 1929, at which point our nice little help the farmers package gets hijacked by city folks, a.k.a. Eastern manufacturers.
2: That's what brings out all the lobbyists and in the industry groups saying this is an opportunity for us to sort of piggyback on uh, the farm tariff by uh, getting higher tariffs on ball bearings and steel and textiles and shoes and bricks. And bottle caps and
1: sprinkler tops. And collapsible tubs and antimony, whatever that is. Here's
0: Irwin reading from a section in his book on. Kraut.
2: The National Kraut Packers Association called for an increase in the duty on kraut from 30 percent to 50 percent. A small firm in Maine requested a duty on canned sardines be raised from 30 percent to 50 percent. Someone from Ohio asked the tariff on imported goldfish to be increased to 35 percent.
1: Ah, the vital pet fish sector. <laughs> so how did this happen? Well, have you ever heard of congressional log rolling? Anyone? Anyone? Tong? Um, kind of. Okay, Say we chop down a tree together. Mm -hmm. I help you roll a bunch of logs to your house. You help roll some to mine. Or in this case, you support my tariff. I support yours.
0: Ah, which helps all of us do one thing. Charge higher prices because of less competition. Well, the bill passes the House and it moves over to the Senate. And now we get to smoot and smut. Wait a minute. Did you just say smut? Uh, Yes, I did. Our Mormon protagonist also wants to ban the
2: import of obscene materials. He took a particular umbrage, for example, at D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover for having obscene passages in it. You can Google them later. And apparently he had a big stack of these books saying, you know, this is obscene material, we, we shouldn't be allowing this in the country. And people were pointing him saying, well, why do you have all these books? What are you doing reading them? How'd uh, you get them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How'd you get them?
1: Smoot smites smut is the famous headline of the day. So the bill adds that, and it keeps moving. Nobody stops it. Though a bunch of economists try, 1,028 of them. They write a letter to President Herbert Hoover warning it would lead to higher prices at home and retaliatory tariffs from America's trading partners.
0: But Congress disses them as blah-blah intellectuals. Take these two Republican senators reenacted here.
2: I am not overawed by the proclamation of college professors who never earned a dollar by the sweat of their brow by honest labor. Free trade
0: intellectuals seem more concerned with the prosperity of foreigners than the well-being of our own American people. Journalists oppose this, too. But somebody else's voice is entirely missing from this debate. Can you guess who that is? Anyone? Gardner? I think it was consumers. You got it. And pay attention here. This is the key to why protectionism is so often a political winner. Consumers who stand to pay a little bit more for sugar or sauerkraut tend not to protest. We'll call it the who cares effect.
1: Protectionism only sticks consumers with a nickel more here, a nickel more there. So who cares?
0: But producers, a few producers pocket all those nickels. They care. Here's Harvard political scientist Jeffrey Frieden.
2: The people who are benefiting or who stand to benefit from trade protection have a lot at stake. The people who are losing from trade protection have very little at stake.
0: And the example he gives today is the same example as 1929, sugar.
2: We in the U.S. pay two or three times as much as the world market price for sugar. First of all, very few Americans know that. And even the ones that do say, well, you know, okay, so I'm paying a couple of cents more for the sugar in my coffee every day. Who cares?
1: In the end, Smoot-Hawley raised taxes on nearly 20,000 imported goods. And even though it made bad economic sense, the bill made good political sense. And all the industries that successfully lobbied loved it. In June 1930, President Hoover signed Smoot-Hawley into law. And then something happens that those pesky economists predicted. A trade war.
0: By now, the Great Depression has begun. And our trading partners are plunging into their own recessions. So they strike back.
1: Yeah, no more Canadian nice. Our northern neighbors immediately slapped tariffs on nearly a third of their American imports. Take eggs. U.S. egg sales to Canada fall 97 percent. And this happened to all kinds of American producers because Europe puts up trade walls, too.
2: Other countries began to mimic the U.S., saying, well, if the U.S. is going to become isolationist, maybe we should do the same thing as well. So it sort of unleashes this dynamic the falling dominoes.
0: So all this breeds ill will and a rising ultranationalism in Europe in the 1930s. So
1: what exactly was the damage from Swinton Hawley's big adventure? Anyone? Anyone know the
0: effects? Now, economists generally agree that the bill did not plunge us into depression. We were in the soup already. But it certainly didn't create jobs. And it probably deepened the depression since it shattered world trade. Everybody lost their global customers.
1: It also flipped the conversation about trade on its head. Up until the 1930s, protectionism was generally seen as a good, sort of patriotic thing.
2: Smoot-Hawley really just made protectionism a bad word. and It was associated with all sorts of things, declining exports, declining employment, Great Depression, ill will among foreign countries. It really did discredit protectionism as a doctrine in American political life.
0: The so-called golden rule of protectionism. Tariff unto others as you would have others tariff unto you.
1: And you know, Scott, this wasn't just a legislative and economic tragedy. Senator mm. Smoot had a downfall as well. Here's historian Brian Cannon at Brigham Young University.
2: Late in the legislative game, he was complaining to friends that he couldn't sleep at nights. Uh, he was taking uh, sleeping pills and they weren't doing anything for him. He was just exhausted. And then when his opponents blamed the tariff for worsening the depression. He took
0: that very personally, and voters in Utah turned him out. They probably would have anyway with the Democratic landslide in 1932. But he uh,
1: took that loss very personally, and he really just became a shell of his former self. Wow. Now, that's the stuff that never makes it into a high school history class, does it? We're going to move now from the halls of Congress in 1930 to the halls of Van Nuys High School in 2017. Van Nuys is in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley.
0: We sent our producer Haley Hirschman to talk with some students in the Advanced Placement World History class. These are young people who were born and raised when global connectedness was generally a given.
1: Now, in AP classes, you have to take a test at the end. And if you do well, you get college credit.
0: Last year's test included a part where students had to name examples of globalization and their effects. So we asked the students for their thoughts. From an economic perspective, I guess you could argue that it is bad because when you have like other countries doing the jobs that
4: could be done in the U.S., there's like a loss of jobs and that's like a major problem. It's something that's in your life every single day and how it's something that's going to be continuing to happen, especially as new um, technologies do come into the world. And in this class, like, it just made us realize more like how it does affect us.
2: I think globalization is important to teach because these students are living in the 21st century. Their competition in the workforce and their career life is going to be with the whole world. They're not just competing with their fellow Americans anymore. And so they need an understanding of the world and they need to be able to compete on a global level.
0: That was DeLooney, Celeste, and their AP history teacher, Jim Neer. So, Sarah? Yes, Scott? I want to ask you about some reporting that you did on trade and globalization. All right. Where you were reporting on helping people who are struggling. Right. History shows this, that free trade and open borders can send low-wage jobs to lower-wage countries, the next cheaper place. It happened to workers in England and the U.S. and Japan and Taiwan. It's even happening in China, right? They don't make the cheap T-shirts anymore.
1: Right. That's happening in Vietnam or somewhere, right?
0: And invariably, politicians promise to help them, politicians who sometimes become the president. But what do countries owe the people who have lost out to free trade?
1: First, let me play you a clip from that TV show, The West Wing, 2004, where they're asking that very same question.
4: Hmm. Do you ever wonder if we forget the human face of trade, that blood and muscle? You have to go with what grows the economy for everyone. There's blood and muscle in India, too. Yeah.
1: So here's what I found in my reporting. Compensating the so-called losers—now, I'd rather call them casualties of globalization—that's very complicated— there isn't really a passionate, powerful constituency to stand up for the people or the communities who stand to lose their jobs to free trade. And this goes all the way back to the early 70s. I talked to economist Fred Bergston. He's now 77 years old. Mm-hmm. He's very well known, founding director of the Peterson Institute. But back then in the 70s, Bergston chaired a Chamber of Commerce task force to figure out a better way to help American workers who had lost their jobs to free trade. Now, at that mm. time, imports from Japan were the big concern. Right. There was a small program in place to help these people, but it was so narrow that in the first six years, not a single American worker qualified for the benefits. Really? So Fred Berkston writes up the task force findings, and he remembers taking this 20-page report to the Chamber of Commerce
2: board. So I entered their sanctum, their boardroom, took the podium... I presented our report. Very, very vigorous debate ensued.
1: And that's because Bergston's report called for a lot more money for more workers, relocation assistance, even money for whole communities affected by plant closures. But while that plan was great for workers, it created problems for some industries in that chamber boardroom. If the government could really cushion the blow for, say, steel workers who lost jobs to foreign competition, that would make the loss of steel jobs less of a big deal, right? And it would weaken steel companies' argument for protectionist trade barriers.
0: Oh, I see. If you cushion the blow a little bit, then suddenly this industry... Doesn't have as much of an urgent emergency case to bring to Washington.
1: Exactly. And Bergson says even some of the free trade advocates on the chamber's board worried that a bigger federal program would just draw unwanted attention to the numbers of Americans losing jobs to trade.
2: To me, that was dramatic. And we've seen that more or less in the 40-plus years since where politicians who support free trade— are often unwilling to draw the logical inference that you have to take care of the downsides and the costs and the losers if you're going to sustain the free trade politically.
1: Now, I went to rural Wisconsin where there are or were all these paper mills, Uh, but in 10 years that state lost a third of its paper mill jobs. That was from 2005 to 2015. And very few workers were ready for it. I met a former mill worker named Mark Van Stappen, who worked at a paper mill in northeastern Wisconsin for almost
2: 30 years. I started at the bottom in some horrendously hardworking jobs where you threw logs all day into grinders, you know. But it was kind of cool. It was all right. It was sort of of therapeutic. It was an okay type of deal.
1: Now, when Van Stappen lost his job, globalization not only hit him, but it hit his wife, too. My wife was working part-time. I worked at the mill, and immediately she says, I have to go work full-time. I have to. We no longer have stability in our lives, you know. So Van Stappen's wife took a job at a company making envelopes, and he took a job, he told me, at a small green energy startup at a couple dollars an hour less. He said the health insurance was terrible, and he had a longer commute. I also talked to Van Stappen's former co-worker, Andy Nerschel. Now, Nerschel briefly thought about going back to school, you know, taking advantage of some retraining money to try for another career. But he told me, you know, it just wasn't for him.
4: I looked a little bit into training, but I didn't especially care for school when I was in, in high school. So I wasn't looking at going back again. I tried a couple different paper mill
0: jobs that I thought, but I didn't get hired at any.
1: So, Scott, this is partly why the big Mm -hmm. retraining or reinvention promise is oversold. People don't or can't move to where the growth jobs are or they're too old to retrain or they can't afford to take the time off to go back to school, Mm -hmm. even with federal money. And the numbers bear this out. A 2014 survey of some laid off mill workers in Wood County, Wisconsin It showed that a little under 39 percent chose to participate in career retraining programs.
0: Yeah, you know, as you say that, Sarah, it just reminds me of talking to out-of-work coal miners in southern Illinois who say, you know, school is not for me. I work with my hands. Yeah. Now, policymakers and economists, they might assume workers will move or retrain, but it seems to me they're still trying to understand why so many people actually don't.
1: Earlier in the show, we talked about how protectionism played out in American history, and still does. Mm. But the United States can't lay claim to the intellectual idea of free trade. It really started in northern England, in the city of Manchester, back in the 1800s.
0: Back then, to protect the farmers, the British government imposed tariffs against imported grain. They were called the corn laws. And there's a fascinating tale of how those laws got repealed. It's an Econ 101 prerequisite
1: with lessons for today. Marketplace's Stephen Beard got that story for us, starting with a tour of Manchester.
3: On this busy street in the city centre stands Manchester's most beautiful building, in glorious sandstone, with Italianate arcades and richly decorated with carved figures. It's not quite what you'd expect to find in the world's first industrial city, a place once infamous for its smoke-belching chimneys. The building celebrates the birth here of a big idea, and, says tour guide Elizabeth Sibbering, proclaims it with a bold inscription across the façade. In big gold letters on the top it says Free Trade Hall and we we think that's probably the only building in the whole world that's named after free trade. Usually it's named after monarchs or places or something like that. Manchester, Radical Manchester, free trade. So it's written on our city. The hall, which today is a five-star hotel, was built in the mid-19th century to commemorate a victory. Victory for the Manchester men... They were the emerging class of merchants and manufacturers and it was their fight in the 1840s against the British aristocracy that launched the movement against tariffs and trade barriers. Today this vast Victorian cotton mill at Quarry Bank south of the city is a tourist attraction. Tens of thousands of visitors come here and are bemused by the clattering wheezing Rube Goldberg machinery. But in the 1840s, as Mike Sanders of Manchester University, people marvelled at this scene. This was the future. There is something awe-inspiring. There is something truly remarkable and amazing about the machinery, the precision, the way in which it produces cloth in quantities that previously could not have been dreamt of. And produced undreamt of wealth. The new textile tycoons resented the old money and the power of the landed aristocracy. And they resented the steep tariffs that those aristocrats had fought to get. They'd made grain more expensive to bolster the profits of the crops grown on their land. Those corn laws, as these tariffs were called, also pushed up the price of bread, with devastating consequences for the poor. We ask our daily bread... This protest song from the 1840s says it all, lamenting the widespread starvation and angrily blaming the aristocracy. Answer, ye lordlings gay, ye useless idle few... But why should the kings of cotton, who were hardly enlightened employers, be concerned about the high price of grain? The merchants didn't like that because it meant that they had to keep wages high as well to keep their workers going, in a way. The cotton mill owners had a keen commercial interest in wanting to scrap the corn laws, says Elizabeth Sibberling. They could see what problems it was causing for their workers. They couldn't afford to eat. Workers and bosses, bankers and lawyers, politicians, churchmen and social reformers joined the crusade against the corn laws. It was a fight for cheaper food, a battle against the aristocracy, and for the textile tycoons in particular, a drive towards free trade. They wanted other countries to scrap their tariffs and throw open their markets to British goods. Like all good crusaders, says Mike Sanders, they convinced themselves that God was on their side. It was the belief that the good Lord had made the world in such a way that the nations were supposed to trade and anything that impeded free trade was harmful to the human race as a whole and in their view it was manifest in the form of people who were going hungry in one of the richest countries in the world. The Crusade crushed the aristocratic opposition. The Corn Laws were repealed in 1846. Foreign grain poured into Britain. Much of it came eventually from the former colony that supplied the Manchester mills with most of their raw cotton. Will Ashworth is author of a new book about the Industrial Revolution. With the rapid influx of prairie grain from the USA, that impacted upon the social structure of Britain. You saw the demise of the landowner and the rise of the middling ranks and the uh, owners of production due to the cheap imports now coming from the uh, prairie lands of the United States of America to Britain. The American Revolution, about 100 years after it had happened, finally humbled the British aristocracy, much to the satisfaction of the British manufacturing and commercial classes. But the repeal of the Corn Laws did not persuade the rest of the world to immediately follow suit, much to the chagrin of free traders. My name is Adrian Wooldridge. I'm the political editor of The Economist. The Economist was founded in 1843 to pursue the case against the Corn Laws. Yes, The Economist is part of this story. It was created to be the voice of the anti corn Law crusade. The irony, says Wooldridge, is that the foreign country that profited most from the repeal of those laws did not embark on the same programme of tariff scrapping. We think of America as being the sort of the great capitalist power, but in fact America was a country that was opposed to free trade right the way through the 19th century and all the way up to 1945. Britain was the first country to embrace it and to say the best way to create universal prosperity is to have freedom of commerce and trade and Britain led that in a world where that was disapproved of by almost everybody. Britain may not have been high-minded in opposing the corn laws. The main aim may have been to exploit its industrial power to flood other countries with its manufactured goods while they focus their energies on agriculture. If that was the plan it has in the long term spectacularly backfired. Britain today has a large trade deficit It's manufacturing as a pale shadow of its former self. Oh, and more than half of its food, including grain, comes from abroad. In London, I'm Stephen Beard for Marketplace.
0: Who knew? The Economist magazine started because of... The corn loss. Surprising.
1: Yeah, and it gives us a broader perspective on the finger-pointing going on now against exporters like China. Mm. Back in the day, Americans were the ones flooding the world market with cheap products and costing other countries their jobs. For our last story, Scott, you are going to give us a global perspective from Kansas City. Can that be right?
0: It's the natural place to go for this. (laughs) Now, here in the rich countries, we hear the angst of people who fear they're losing their economic edge to other countries that are catching up. And economists do use this term catch up to describe emerging country economies that are growing really quickly.
1: Yeah, there's even a sense that countries like China have overtaken us. So have they?
0: Certainly they're catching up quickly. But let's back up a minute or back up a couple centuries, actually. (laughs) If we go back to the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution, steam engines, steam ships, railroads and the telegraph, those benefited a small percentage of people in the world. Maybe only 15 percent people in Western Europe and North America, plus Australia and New Zealand. The rest of the world pretty much stood still. So you have this, this divergence, this separation But now, with the new globalization, container ships and the internet and global supply chains, this has allowed a lot of countries to start making up that gap. Convergence.
1: Convergence. Okay, so tell Mm -hmm. us about India by way of Kansas City.
0: One way to understand how fast the Indian economy is running is to join Indian men who are running. on. On a cricket pitch in Kansas City. Really, This is a technology city, home to companies like Sprint and Garmin, these software and IT professionals spend their Saturdays batting and pitching. I mean, bowling. League president Suresh Cannon bats righty, works for Sprint.
5: When I came here back in 97, there was only maybe a couple of teams, not great players. You got to go call players and beg them to come to play, you know. Since then total number of players are around 600.
0: The Indian community here, now 7,000 strong, has boomed as the economy back home has exploded. It's a global story of Indian talent connecting with U.S. education and technology and investment. India's economy is now growing at 7% a year. It's the fastest-growing large country in the world. And this is a story of what economists call catch-up, where poor countries adopt proven technology and ideas by opening up to the outside world. But for all the whooping, there's now tension, as the Indians here question how open the U.S. is to them. In February, at a bar in the suburb of Olathe, a white man shot two Indian men, IT workers, cricket teammates, and killed one. The shooter first asked about the men's immigration status. Aviva Ajmera is an Indian-American who works as a business strategy consultant in Kansas City.
4: Even if you're born and raised here, when something like the shooting in Olathe happens in your community... Everybody feels vulnerable because we look different.
0: Now she looks over her shoulder more often, watches other people watching her, even though the city rallied for its immigrants right after the shooting.
4: The Kansas City community, not just the Indian community, came together. Just to show support for the Indian community. I mean, kind of the message was, yeah, that happened and it was awful, but that's not our city.
0: The concern is not just the shooting. People of Indian descent have heard President Trump talk about limiting trade deals and visas. And they heard ex-White House strategist Steve Bannon blast South Asians in a Breitbart talk radio show.
4: You know, when three-quarters of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from South Asia or from Asia, I think, well, on, 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 a, on my point is that a country's more than an economy. We're a civic society. The resentment could
0: have something to do with who's catching up. For three decades now, fast-growing economies like India and China have narrowed the gap with the rich world while working-class incomes in the U.S. have stayed flat. Economist Branko Milanovic at the City University in New York says one does not cause the other, but some might think it does.
5: That was seen as one indication of why there was disenchantment with globalization or why maybe these people voted uh, you know, in favor of Brexit or Trump. In Kansas City, fewer college applications
0: from India are landing, and fewer Indians are being hired by companies nervous that the visa rules could change. Now, there's no wholesale exodus, but things have changed since the earliest IT workers came in the early 90s. Back then, India was just emerging from a Soviet-style centrally planned economy, as in one TV channel, says Suresh Kanan of the Cricket League.
5: If you have a TV, you are a rich person. We basically forced our parents to buy a TV, and we bought a color TV, and um, we were like a popular family around the neighborhood. Um, They used to call us a color TV family.
0: (laughs) Then, in 1991, India's government opened up the country dramatically, and in came American companies, investors, lowbrow TV shows. Like you. Oh!
5: The popular shows was the Jerry Springer show. Jerry Springer. <laughs> yeah, we used to think it's all real. People throwing chairs at yeah, each other. Yeah, all and those all things. things. And, yeah, and then um, watching Baywatch was a shock for us because that's something completely against our Indian culture at that time.
0: Great moments in globalization. Kansas City IT entrepreneur Manoj Manathumaril says when he was a kid in India, there was one model of car on the road. The Hindustan Motors ambassador was so noisy that kids playing on the street could safely hear it blocks away. And then came the affordable, fuel-efficient Suzuki car. Its only problem? Too quiet.
5: We used to tell people, be careful, those cars doesn't make any sounds.
0: Mani graduated college and then studied programming in India. And that's a key ingredient to the country's catch-up recipe, which includes education, democracy, openness, investment, entrepreneurs. He was hired in the Bangalore office of the Digital Equipment Corporation, based in faraway Massachusetts. At the time, U.S. tech firms were recruiting heavily in India.
5: And I think the primary motivation was that year 2000 computer problem, Y2K problem. They were going to rewrite the code, so they need huge manpower. Eventually,
0: he got hired by a firm in Silicon Valley. And then he moved to Kansas City to form his own company. Why there? Nice people, cheaper housing.
5: Only thing we didn't like was the winter, the cold.
0: And there are other disconnects. Many Indians are vegetarians in the land of Kansas City barbecue, trying to grasp American jokes.
5: So when I sit in meetings, somebody crack a joke, And I will have to synchronize my laugh with them. And then later ask, what did it mean?
0: (laughs) Like all business owners, Mani Thumariel competes on price. And often, the best bang for his buck is to outsource the simpler IT work back to India. And that revenue back home is helping to fuel a rising consumer economy. The average income in India is rising three times faster than it is here. Economist Branko Milanovic.
5: We're really talking here about a rebalancing of the world and significantly higher incomes in Asia. And I think openness and globalization played a very important role in that. The upshot?
0: Today, there's a thicker global economic middle.
5: It is a very favorable, very good development. And it led to what I called actually the largest reshuffle of incomes since the Industrial Revolution.
0: And some believe that despite the recent backlash, the U.S. will remain connected to the India growth story. Ramanan Narayan is an economist and epidemiologist who lectures at Princeton. He says both countries are connected by language, democracy, technology, and worldview.
3: These are places that will be connected in mind, certainly not by geography, but certainly in mind space, which is the most important space. I don't think an H-1B problem of today or... One crazy guy in Kansas is going to change that story.
0: A US citizen, Lachman Narayan now lives in India, where he started a company called Health Cubed. Its device brings diagnostic tests, cholesterol, pregnancy, HIV, malaria, to the village masses. And India's health market is the next big thing.
3: As you grow wealthier, you actually want the health in order to be able to enjoy that wealth. There's no point dying off at the age of 30, you know, after you've made a lot of money. For
0: India's catch up, there's still a long way to run. The average income per person there is about two thousand dollars, compared to about fifty-seven thousand here.
5: Good morning, good morning.
0: And at the center of this is cricketers in places like Kansas City, global middlemen in a global game. Right now, laughing at an American reporter trying to play theirs. <laughs>
1: Tradeoff. Stories of globalization, backlash, trade, and trade wars. A long view of how we got here and what may lie ahead.
0: Now, you'll be hearing a lot more on this subject, on the air, and in our Marketplace programming. Meantime, head over to the Marketplace.org website to see our past coverage, plus a video about the winners and losers of globalization that may surprise you.
1: And that would be starring Scott Tong. Nice job, Scott.
0: Well, and a lot of graphics and video covering up Scott Tong. (laughs)
1: This trade-off special is produced by Haley Hirschman.
0: Our editor is Eve Trow, and Charlton Thorpe and Drew Jastet are our engineers.
1: Joanne Griffith is executive producer of Marketplace Weekend, and Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace executive editor.
0: Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager.
1: I'm Sarah Gardner.
0: And I'm Scott Tong. Thanks for listening. This is APM.